Isn't it beautiful to see the sunshine early this morning? Oh man, every week we get more of it. I love this time of year. <clears throat> I try not to be a judgmental person, but I'm going to confess to you this morning, I think that the people who designed uh, roundabouts are self-righteous and pretentious. Every time I come to a roundabout, I just feel angry, you know? Some group of people sitting in a room somewhere were like, oh, let's put a roundabout instead of a regular intersection. I might be, uh, some of my judgmentalism might be related to my own insecurity about roundabouts. I don't know what's happening when I come to a roundabout. Um, I usually just end up stopping in the lane and trying to figure out what everyone else is doing, you know? I don't know which lane I'm supposed to be in. I don't know how to get out of the roundabout. But I can concede That is exactly why we have roundabouts. Roundabouts are proven to be life-saving because they force you to stop. They actually force you to slow down and think about what's happening at this intersection instead of seeing a green light and flying through at 60 miles an hour. What uh, what we're going to do here at Church on the Rock I'm going to give you just a little bit of a preview. Um, for the next four weeks, uh, we're going we're gonna to slow down. Um, we're actually going to slow down and, and, and circle a few times. Um, we're going to spend the next four weeks, uh, and I'm going I'm to explain... Uh, some of the why and the how and the what as we continue forward. Um, But we're going to spend the next four weeks uh, here at Church on the Rock on Sunday mornings talking about repentance. Which you all need. After those four weeks, uh, we're going to uh, launch into a three-week series that will culminate Easter Sunday, and it will be a three-week series celebrating Christ. If you are willing to engage, to fully engage, over these next four weeks as we uh, dive into the topic of repentance, you will have an Easter like you've never experienced before. Because your capacity to to experience, not to tell yourself, but to experience uh, Christ in relationship with him, to, to feel the draw to him, 
is actually something that flows out of uh, repentance. So we've been in the book of Judges. You guys remember that? Remember all of those sad, depressing stories? Sorry to do that to you. But it wasn't my decision to put it in the Bible. So if you're familiar with 1 Samuel, which is where the story picks up after the book of Judges, we learn something. I'm going to kind of give away the punchline, which we're not going to get back to until after Easter. But what happens after the book of Judges in the context of sharp cultural and moral decline, social decline, is that everyone agrees on one thing, and that is that the answer to this cultural decline is a better political system. Which, of course, doesn't sound familiar to our ears. That surely politics will serve, will save the world, will better serve the world, and rescue us from what brings us down. Remember our introduction, the series of judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Remember that? Everyone always was doing what was right in their own eyes. And then secondly, if you were here for this, you remember that on the, on the spiral of decline, at every stage of the spiral of decline, they made the same mistake over and over again, and that is they failed to love God. When there was peace, they didn't love God. When there was affliction, they asked for help, they didn't love God. When they would cry out for help, they didn't love God. And when God would send that help, it did not lead them to love God. And in a time of peace, that absence of love for God was manifested as cultural complacency. So what we're going to do for the next four weeks, if you'll stick with us, uh, we're going to take some time for some self-examination. We're going to take some time to look inward. I actually told my staff that for these four weeks, we're going to skip announcements. We want to get right to it. I want to uh, get after it, so to speak. I've noticed something more prevalent over the last two years, and that is that everyone, every, not every time, but oftentimes when someone is describing, and I'm guilty of this too, when someone's describing sort of a malady or an illness of Christian culture in the US, they will describe it as pertaining to most Christians. Most Christians probably just don't have enough faith. Most Christians probably just don't trust the Lord enough. Most Christians probably care more about money. And I haven't met those most Christians yet, but I've met all the people who are describing them. 
And this is the challenge that you're going to face as we jump into this. You're going to sit in your seat and you're going to make application for other people. You should not do that. Do other people in this room need repentance? Who cares? Some of you are going to leave here this morning really disappointed that so-and-so wasn't present. Maybe your spouse. If you're anything like me, you very quickly move to defending yourself to yourself, which is interesting, right? Simultaneously in your own mind and heart playing the, the defense and the prosecution. Or maybe you harshly accuse yourself and focus on fixing yourself. But the end result of both of those is that no real change takes place. <clears throat> and so this is what I'm asking and this is what I'm inviting you to as we take the next four weeks um, and talk on the topic of repentance, we're actually going to, we're going to build a house of repentance and there's an order, there's a, a, a necessary order to what we're going to cover over the next, next four weeks. Um, I would ask that uh, you petition the Lord for the strength to quiet all of those internal things that go on and that you would just be open to the Lord to hear from him. And that you would be content to just deal between you and the Lord. So I know we've prayed a couple of times already this morning, but I want you to take a minute. I want you to articulate the words in your own mind, in your own heart to the Lord to make yourself available to hear from him. Would you do that now? God, would you strengthen my yes to you?
Would you enable my openness to hear and to receive and to act? Would you tear down the defenses in my own mind and heart built by my own shame and my own pride, my own fear? from you. In Jesus' name. If you're visiting, we're always this serious. <laughs> I'm going to ask a couple of rhetorical questions, and again, um, you'll be able to engage these questions to the degree that you just, without interference, are able to just talk to the Lord about this. How's it going living the purpose for which you were created? You remember? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. All of the Christian experience, all of the Christian faith is built upon that very simple foundation that you were created by God, given the opportunity to choose whether or not you would love him and to love him with everything that you are, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so my question is, how is that going? The scriptures seem to suggest, maybe that's too weak, the scriptures definitely suggest that the Christian experience of peace beyond understanding, joy overflowing, contentment in the face of suffering is the product not of external changes, but an internal one. The message of the gospel is that the experience of peace beyond understanding, joy overflowing, contentment in the face of suffering is the result of God bringing about an internal change in my heart, not an external change to my environment. It's not environmental adjustments, but it's the transformation of my heart and my mind in the way that I interact, engage with, and experience my environment, my relationships. So again, and I'll do this a few times this morning. What do you point to as the explanation for your lack of peace? Think of conversations you've had recently where you've expressed a lack of peace or a lack of peace has been manifested. What do you point to for your own lack of peace. 
What do you point to as the explanation for your inability to experience joy in everything? Do you experience joy in everything? 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 And if not, what do you point to to explain that? What do you point to as the explanation for your lack of contentment and your inability to suffer with grace? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. What I want to do here, uh, I want to set this up, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, talk through our desires and then we're going to look at a couple of scriptures together but I want to offer you five sort of calibrations or ways that we think about desire or core motivations things that things that move me as a person five calibrations that help me think about and understand desire the first one is magnitude is my desire powerful? Have you ever experienced very powerful desire? Yes? I'll tell you the most powerful desires in my life that I've experienced outside of my relationship with God. I wanted to marry Jenny so badly. So, so badly. I couldn't think about anything else. I didn't care about anything else. I just wanted to marry that girl so badly. I can remember as a 10-year-old experiencing a similarly intense desire, and that was to catch a king salmon larger than my brother caught on the Anchor River. wanted to catch a big fish so badly. I really like carbs. I experience that desire pretty intensely. used to really desire video games. And then I became an adult. <laughs> Sorry. That was an unnecessary slight. <sighs> Understand when we talk about magnitude that the desire does not have to be conscious in order to be very powerful. You don't have to be conscious of your desire for approval for it to powerfully drive your behavior and powerfully control your own heart. And that's why I'm telling you, you've got to come to this, we've got to come to this discussion with open hands and an open heart before the Lord because, because we've layered so many self-deceptions. 
You don't have to be conscious of your desire for success in order for it to have an incredibly powerful impact on your behavior. You don't have to be conscious of the way that your ego has a ravenous appetite that drives your behavior. Is my desire powerful magnitude? Second sort of calibrating factor is contrast. Is my desire much more powerful than any other desire? Which is more disappointing? Missing time with God or missing dinner? Is my desire more powerful than any other love? Not the question, and again, when we're talking about the greatest commandment, the question is not, do I, do I possess a commitment to God that is more stable than my other commitments. You can't sterilize any discussion of love and desire from any affect. It's not just a set of decisions. What I'm asking is, is do you experience a draw to God that is of any significant proportion larger than you experience all other attractions or desires? That's contrast. Is my, is my desire for God less than, equal to, slightly larger than all of the other desires that I feel in any given day or week or month or year? Or is my desire powerfully overwhelming when measured against everything else that my, that my heart goes after? Contrast. A third calibrating factor is potential. Is the object of my desire obtainable? I want to be Tom Brady. He's actually older than I am. So if you tell me I'm too late, because you're judgmental and you don't believe in me. <laughs> but if I decided now that I wanted to be Tom Brady, I'd probably come across more like Uncle Rico, for those of you who can appreciate that reference. <laughs> Is it obtainable? Meaning that this, this desire is the object of that desire, something that I can grab hold of. Think about something like the need for success. Su success is like, it's like vapor, right? The moment you have a hold of it, it's gone, and you reach again, and you reach again, and you reach again. You think about something like approval, the approval of others. The moment that you think you have a hold of it, it's gone. It, 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 it 
dematerializes in your hand as you clutch it. So then it would seem reasonable to suggest that if I have this very great desire, but that desire is towards something that I can never really lay hold of, I might be a frustrated person. Fair? Potential is the object of my desire obtainable. What do I powerfully want to have control of? Oftentimes our anxiety flows from our inability to gain that control fully. The fourth calibrating factor is potency. How powerfully Will the object of my desire satisfy? I think I have the wrong word there. Oh, no, that's right. How powerfully will the object of my desire satisfy? So in other words, so I experience magnitude. It's very powerful. Contrast, it's more powerful than all of my other desires, right? Potential, it's something that I can get a hold of. I want to catch a big fish. I caught a big fish. Potency has to do with how much achieving that thing or gaining that thing or getting that thing will make me happy. You track with that? There are some things that you experience very powerfully. If you take something more concrete like I want money, you can have money. You can get it. I mean, you'll have to you might have to compromise some other things to get it, but you can get money. Potency has to do with how powerfully getting money will satisfy you as a person. Spoiler alert, not so much. And this is actually in the Christian faith, this is where, this is where faith comes into the equation more powerfully. Because the potency of laying hold of God can't be um, adequately uh, described in a way that's convincing. It's something that has to be experienced, and faith is the only thing that can get you there. You have to trust. Because our flesh is very vocal. Our flesh is very confident as to what will ultimately satisfy. And our flesh, our, the appetites of the body, lie to us constantly on that front. Now, what does that have to do with anything? This is what you need. And that will bring you peace and joy and contentment and satisfaction. And in my my years of conversations with many of you. Um, there's no person more confused, more lost, more depressed than the person who's just on the other side of having laid a hold of a very long-felt desire and is drowning in disappointment because it didn't do what it was going to do. It didn't satisfy. And if not, what's left? I've put years, decades of my life, and I'm empty. 
understand that this is actually the primary distinction on this front between Buddhism and the gospel. In the context of Buddhism, the fundamental truth is that in order to escape suffering, you must escape desire. And the gospel says, no, no, no. There is only one true, satisfying object of desire in the universe. The one for which you were created to enjoy, and it is God himself. And the fifth calibrating factor is permanency. For years for school, I would travel to South Carolina, and every time I went to South Carolina, I would go to Bojangles. That's right. Anyone know Bojangles? Fried chicken? It'd change your life. For five minutes. An hour later, I need more Bojangles. That grease gets a hold of you, right? Makes you crave more grease. Permanency is answering the question, let's say that I have this very powerful desire, that I experience this desire much more powerfully than any other desire. The object of that desire is something that I can lay hold of, and it does provide a sense of satisfaction. But how long will that satisfaction last? Is it fleeting? Is it momentary? Or is it stable? Is it permanent? That's a critical question, right? So here's my next rhetorical question. are possessed by one desire that is by many orders of magnitude greater than all other desires when you are able at all times to lay a hold of and possess the object of that desire and the object of your desire is profoundly and supremely satisfying would this not impact the way that others experience you as a person? If you had one desire that was so substantially greater than all of your other desires, and this one desire that you possessed that was so powerful, and so great in contrast to all other desires was towards something that you could lay hold of and that in laying hold of would bring about a, a, a profound and lasting satisfaction in your life. Would that not impact the way that the people around you experience you as a person?
Would you not seem by appearance to be someone with the great and powerful inner satisfaction? And would not others note of you that even when bothered by other difficulties, that this satisfaction, this contentment, this joy, and this peace would be observably stable? Yes? Is this not the reason that Jesus in John 13 says, your defining quality, the thing that will make you aliens to the earthly population, will be your love? The story of Judges is that everyone wanted God to fix the world's problems, but didn't particularly want God. And yet they never understood the difference between those two things. They conflated them. No, of course I want God to fix the world's problems. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Read a couple of passages. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. Who am I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you say that the writer of this psalm experiences a notable and substantial difference uh, between their desire for God and their desire for everything else? In fact, to this author, the difference is so substantial, the disparity of those desires so substantial, he hardly recognizes those other's desires as being desires. I have you. You are my portion. You are my lot in life. You are the gift. And because of that gift, I find strength. When, first, when my heart fails, when my heart withers away, when my heart collapses inward, is overcome, when my heart writhes in agony or is gripped by anxiety, I have you, and my desire for you is so interwoven into who I am as a person that having that desire, having access to that, to you, I have strength. Not a solution, strength in the context of my heart failing, I have you. And that is my strength. When my flesh fails, when my appetites betray me, when my health abandons me, when my physiological tensions rage, 
I have you. You are my portion. Because I have you, I have strength. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The path of life, that one that leads to the experience of joy and pleasure, both experienced in fullness, that's potency, and forever, that's permanency. It is in relationship with you that joy is experienced uh, fully and joy is experienced in a lasting way. Psalms 34, or sorry, 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You understand what he's saying. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he, and, and he will give himself to you. Make the Lord the object of your affection and you can have him. There's real potential there. You can lay hold of it. You understand that these things we're talking about, peace and joy and contentment in the face of suffering, none of the promised benefits of the gospel are achieved as the result of a direct pursuit. They're all fruit of the pursuit of Jesus. There's so much effort being put into now, today, into feeling good about myself and my situation. And that all the promises of the gospel are outcomes of an all-consuming pursuit of the person of Jesus, of relationship with God, of love for God that overshadows all other pursuits, all other ambitions, all other desire. Delight yourself in the Lord and you will have the Lord. Two more, Psalm 63, three, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Not only is God the most worthy desire in life, but his love is more valuable than life itself. Last one, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. If you read the context in Philippians 3, he's comparing two things, Christ against his many efforts to be a good person. He says, all of my efforts to be a good person 
don't hold a candle to what it means to know Christ, to be in relationship with Christ, to be known by Christ, and to love him. Paul is not arguing that righteousness is irrelevant. He's saying righteousness was the sum total of my ambition. That's religion. My goal was not to know God and be known by God and to love him. My goal was to be a good person and to be known as a good person. And in my mind now, having met Christ and now being in relationship with him, that is a load of trash. Everyone was right in their own eyes. And that's exactly the problem. They were interested in being right and conflated being right with knowing and loving God. It's so profoundly easy as a Christian to replace knowing God with doing good. All true goodness is the fruit of knowing God. But we put our back into doing good, thinking that that is how we get to knowing God. And it's exactly the opposite. You put your back into knowing God. And he brings the fruit into your life. So, how is your love for God? Is it the very engine that drives, that powers your life? Is it a bumper sticker that you slap onto your many other ambitions, needs, and desires? And here's where it gets tricky. Because it's here, right at this juncture that we're at right now together. It's right here. If you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, many of you right now will take the wrong first step. And there's only one appropriate first step, and I'm going to define this quickly. One appropriate first step, and that is repentance. Some of you are already solving what you need to do to love God better. You're not ready for that yet. It's not time yet. Repentance. Repentance is defined most simply as a, as a 180 degree change in direction. I was walking this way, and I'm going to choose now to go this way. Turning from what and towards what? I know what I'm turning toward. I'm turning towards God. I'm saying yes to Jesus. What am I turning from? Everything that is competing against or triumphing over my affection for Christ. Repentance is often characterized by a feeling of sorrow and regret associated with my current decisions and where it's landed me. And yet, hear me out on this, this experience of regret is not penitence to pay for my past mistakes. 
I don't get myself feeling bad enough, uh, bad enough about myself and then give that to the Lord as proof that I'm going to do something. Well, I guess, you know, this is the price of my decisions. I just need to feel bad for a while. No, true repentance is, is fueled by true remorse that here's these things that I've been after and they're garbage. When I could have been having him this whole time. I could have been saying yes to him. What have I been doing? Repentance is not predicated by a firm understanding of how to find your way back. Repentance is just turning. Jesus himself, Matthew 3, 3, 3, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, here's the boundary. This is where God lives. I'm going this way. And no matter how long and how far I've walked in this direction, he says, turn around and take one step. And the kingdom of God is there. Just say Yes. And what motivates my repentance? It's the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God. It's the God who very gently and compassionately has said, you can choose whatever you want. You can choose whatever you want. you could choose me and know this that's why I made you Chris I'm going to invite uh, you up we're going to take a little bit of time and just have a conversation with the Lord about the quality of your relationship with him we're going to take a little bit of time reflect just going to have Chris play you can repent in your seat You could come up here and repent if you want. You could leave and repent. But I so strongly want to discourage you from trying to solve right now. Repentance is just, I'm sorry.
confession is that the worries and concerns of life have slowly choked out my pursuit of Jesus. My confession is that my ambitions, my needs, my concerns, my desire for control have been more powerful in driving my heart and my actions than has been my relationship with Jesus. is that when others around me have observed me as joyless, as discontented, as anxious, as dissatisfied, I have pointed the finger at many other explanations that draw attention away from my tepid love for and pursuit of Christ. is that my acts of love have not been worthy of the God of the universe.
prayer for our church is that we would respond to your kindness that we would know the comfort and security that comes from a posture of repentance where we just honestly acknowledge our, our insufficiency our shortcomings our inability and we just turn to you into a greater experience of the love for which we were created. for you. Give us the grace to hand those to you. to worship. <laughs> it's good to worship while you're still in progress. It's one of the amazing things about the compassion of Christ. We get to enjoy him while we're still trying to figure out how to enjoy him. You know what I mean? you to invest this week in your own time. I want you to take time. I want you to meet with the Lord. And I don't want you to try to solve a very complex set of issues that prevent you from finding a deep sense of joy and peace and contentment in Jesus. 
just want you to take a posture of repentance. And every time that you become aware, just acknowledge it to the Lord. My prayer is that in that acknowledgement, that you would be able to see his kindness towards you. There's no room for guilt and shame, motivations of fear in the context of the gospel. It's an open invitation to love. You just don't do it well. So many things competing for our affection for the Lord. Just confess them. Just confess them. Just acknowledge them in humility. Say, Lord, I'm sorry about this. This thing took over my heart. And I'm going to turn to you. You'll be amazed the beautiful fruit that will come out of those simple conversations. I'm praying for you. We've got more to go.